And please pray with me. Lord, it's, it's always good to say at the end of our scripture readings, the word of the Lord, that we would remember that all scripture is breathed out by you, that all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that we may be complete, that we may be equipped for every good work. So Lord, we just pray in this time that we would become acquainted with your word, that we would be made wise for salvation through it. Uh, Lord, your Holy Spirit is necessary for that. Um, There's more going on here than simply a lecture or a talk or information transfer. Uh, It's our conviction uh, that your Spirit is alive and at work and alone has the capacity to do the work in our heart that we can't do for ourselves or even for each other. And so, Lord, apply it to our hearts uh, that that, uh, we would be those who would be fed to the depths of our person and that fruit would ensue from our lives, that Santa Fe would be blessed uh, and even beyond, that that, uh, many would come to know you and that you would get glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as many of you know, we have a little partner church up in Taos called... uh, the Grace Brethren Church of Taos, and, and both Greg and I have been up there preaching. And the last time I was up there, uh, on the way home, I stopped by to see an old friend who uh, has a little business there in Rancho de Taos, um, where he deals in antique native textiles, or what we might call Indian blankets. And seeing him made me remember a story I heard about him once, uh, and the story is that a woman came into his shop with a blanket that she'd recently inherited and uh, came in to sell it to him. And, you know, before he even had a chance to get into the whole appraisal process, she, you know, she came in hot. So she, she kind of launched in to how, you know, I know it's rare, I know it's worth a lot, named her price and said, I will not take a penny less. And um, he heard her out, he took it all in, and he, and he said to her, he said, look, I know you think that that's what this is worth, but I need to tell you, just so you know, it's worth 10 times that. Now, you know, we've been in the Beatitudes for some, for some time now, and I'd say that this part of the Bible, as much as any, reveals our incapacity for knowing what things are worth. Um, you know, we, we, as we've gotten into this uh, passage of Scripture, this part of the Sermon on the Mount, I think what's been revealed is, is what we might naturally regard as pitiful, is actually shown to be quite precious. And and the reverse is true as well, that what we hang on to is quite precious uh, in in the kingdom is revealed to be quite pitiful. You know, and it's worth taking a minute just to kind of review this, uh, the first four Beatitudes that got us to this point, you know, that describe uh, not only what it looks like to come to faith in Christ, but what it looks like to follow Christ. Not Not just the way into the kingdom, but a description of the way of the kingdom. Um, So, you know, the first step in is poverty of spirit. What's that? That's the knowledge that, in fact, I'm not rich in spirit. Uh, I'm poor. I'm weak. Standing in front of God's holy presence, I am no longer able to grade on the curve. And I realize that all I bring to the table is my sin. And apprehending that, apprehending the holiness of God and the depth of my sin, I repent. I mourn. Because I not only realize there's a great chasm between me and the God who made me, 
but that I am responsible for that chasm. And that causes me to mourn my sin and repent. And the effect of that experience is deeply humbling. It creates in me the qual this quality of meekness. It drives me, in other words, to find my life and my strength, not in myself, but in him. And with the illusion of autonomy gone, finding my life in the Lord alone, I become one who is hungry and thirsty for righteousness, a righteousness that only Jesus can provide. And then we get here, we get to this fifth beatitude, uh, this beatitude having to do with mercy, which sits really at the center of them all, right at the center, uh, as something like the hub of the wheel. And, and I think it's here that we see something new, that we see that the blessing given to us who've come to faith in Christ is given explicitly to go out from us. You know, the first fundamental blessing to go out from God's people is mercy. So, so I want to spend some time meditating on this blessedness together, a blessedness described as coming to the merciful, but, but critically through the merciful because of the mercy of Jesus Christ that has come to us. And we're going to look at that connection. So I want to see three things that this grace does to those who receive it. First, it's a grace that transforms Secondly, it's a grace that teaches. And thirdly, it's a grace that tests. Uh, first, mercy is a transforming grace. It changes you. You know, with all these blessings, uh, this isn't something that comes naturally to us, just like all the others. It's not a personality trait. Uh, it's not a skill to be developed so much, but it is a grace that comes from the God of the Bible who is himself called merciful. And, and it's important to say, not merely described as merciful, but mercy is so central to who the Lord is in his being, so core to his self-disclosure and identity that mercy is quite literally written into his name. You see this in Exodus 34 when Moses is again before the Lord, as he, as he was similarly to Exodus 3, and he hears God's name. God says his name. But this time, it's more expansive. God doesn't so much utter the name as he does, you know, what I would say, kind of unfold it. Show him more of who he is in his glory. And here's what he says his name is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, did you notice that? The very first thing God says about himself is that he's merciful. And, and here's the other thing. Having the glory of God unfolded before him, Moses receives mercy. And, and not only receives it, he's actually changed by it. He comes down from the mountain, a, a changed man. You might recall that Moses is famous for his humility. He's been humbled in the presence of God. Mercy is who God is. Certainly not all that he is, but he is always that. And to the degree we attain that quality, it is because we've received it as a grace from him. Um, so presence before his mercy produces mercy. That's how it works. Moses was transformed by the encounter. And so for us to know and receive this same blessedness means we have to have the encounter. We have to stand before him. We have to walk this path that's laid before us in the Beatitudes that I just went through with you. And that's important because this is the first Beatitude where Jesus explicitly 
I think, gives his followers something to do. Um, yet, you know, even as we're called to do it, we need to hang on to this idea that it's not our work alone because, again, it doesn't come naturally to, it, to us. We can't make, a, make mercifulness in ourselves. It must come first by receiving mercy. So mercy will always be the result of Christ's work in us first in order that he might work through us for others. Uh, one writer put it this way, being merciful is not a condition of God's grace, it is a consequence of God's grace. Now, I don't think it's overstating it to say Christian morality begins here. You know, if you were going to write a book with the title Christian Morality, chapter one ought to be mercy. That ought to be the first lesson. So like everything else in the Beatitudes, mercy is born of the gospel. It's fruit that grows from poverty of spirit, repentance, meekness, hunger, and thirst for the living God, and then mercy grows. God's mercy toward you in Jesus Christ necessarily does the work of transformation. It makes you into something that you and I had no hope of being apart from that work, and that is that we are able to become a merciful person. If you've ever been on the receiving end of it, it produces a transformation, and that transformation has lessons to teach us. The transformation teaches us something. Mercy teaches. And what I think it teaches is a, is a new way to live and a new way to relate to other people. The first thing that mercy teaches us is that the mercy which was conveyed to us must be carried out by us. Um, those who get mercy are compelled to give it away. In fact, in order for mercy to be mercy... You have to give it away. Otherwise, it's not mercy. It's something else. It's information. You can't get mercy and squirrel it away. It's a grace that's, that's given to be distributed. I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones explained this by comparing grace and mercy. He said, grace is especially associated with people in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with people in their misery, in their brokenness. In other words, mercy is grace going to work through God's people to those whose lives are miserable, broken, messy because of sin. Mercy teaches that. It trains us to see sinful, broken people with new eyes. And, and you know, I want you to hear this, not merely as perpetrators of sin, but also victims of sin. When you take in the fullness of what the Beatitudes lay out for us, you have to ask the question, you know, who, who's learned more about mercy than Christians themselves, right? I mean, mercy sits like a hub of the wheel of the Beatitudes. It also ought to sit like the hub of the wheel of our lives, very central to our story. Mercy is that which has transformed us. It's that's what's, it's, it is that which is teaching us. And to gain some understanding, if we're sort of taking in the lesson, I think we can just sort of put some questions to ourselves as individuals, as a community. And, you know, one is just to consider this question. Are, are we attaining, gaining new sympathies in our lives? New sympathy. Deeper sympathy. Are, are we growing softer toward people? Or are we getting harder toward them? Are we more tender-hearted towards those who struggle or harder on them? Are we more broken-hearted at the lostness of our neighbors or less? You know, the Christian experience of, of mercy and coming to know Jesus means that, that of all people, we ought to be experts in mercy. 
eager to dispense it, those who enjoy seeing it go to work the most because of our experience with it ourselves as sinners saved by grace. So, so that what must come with mercy are new and deep, newer and deeper sympathies towards those who don't yet know Jesus. That's kind of a growing thing in our lives. And, you know, in fact, I'd, I'd push it further to say that not only is there new sympathy, but there's also kind of a new sense of urgency. You know, that, that, that we're discontent with the fact that there are so many people who've yet to be on the receiving end of the mercy of God. You know, to know the same grace that set us free. I'm going to give you an example um, of, of how the Lord, you know, in my life has been gracious to grow a new sympathy in me. And I'm going to tell you the story about two people, okay? One is pre-children John, and the other is post-children John. And, and here's what you need to know about pre-children John. He knew a lot more about being a parent than post-children John ever did. Pre-children John was an expert on parenting, especially your parenting. Um, you know, an expert on how people ought to raise their kids, about how they ought to keep them under control in restaurants and discipline them and educate them and all kinds of things, right? That's pre-children John. I can remember when I was young, uh, married with no kids, and a friend of mine in seminary gave me a ride in his minivan, and he had three little kids. You know, and I remember grabbing the door handle, and there was, it was, like, sticky. <laughs> and, you know, and then I get in the car, and there's, you know, crayon marks on the ceilings. And, you know, and I think there was, like, a squeak, squeak toys to move out of the way. And then, you know, I settle into the seat, you know, that's covered in goldfish cracker crumbs. And I sat there thinking to myself, I don't know if I'll ever have children, but if I do... I will never live like this. <laughs> and of course, you can imagine the rest of the story. Four children later, um, along with them, crayons, stickiness, squeaky toys, uh, foot injuries, you know, from stepping on Legos, goldfish crackers. You know, and, and with that experience came new sympathies. Because, and here's why. Because it, the story I once stood outside of you know, the world I was quick to judge, harsh in my judgment, knew everything about, that now became my own story. I came to experience, you know, the, the same joys and sorrows, the striving and struggling that comes along with being a new parent. There were new sympathies there. And, you know, yet, we struggle to be merciful, don't we? You know, we struggle, I think, with even understanding what mercy is and, and also with how to apply it. You know, my oldest son, we were in the kitchen, and uh, he has this wonderful gift of sort of cutting to the heart of the matter, and he happened to come across something, you know, this saying often used in Christian circles that one shouldn't give a hand out, but only a hand up. And, you know, in all of his young adult sarcasm, he saw that saying, and he said, right, because Jesus told us never to give anything away. <laughs> Good point. And look, that idea of giving a hand out or a hand up instead of a hand out, you know, is something. Uh, I might even say it could probably be valuably applied in certain circumstances, but it's not mercy. It's not. Because mercy isn't, you know, me coming part way to you so long as you come the rest of the way to me. You know, it isn't me sort of 
assisting you to clean up, you know, and once your act is cleaned up, then I'll, then I'll give you the hand up. Mercy is me going all the way, all the way for you. Mercy is me giving everything away with no expectation in return. But, you know, one of the challenges of this particular beatitude is just the way it's presented to us actually looks like a quid pro quo. It looks like a tit-for-tat situation. Be merciful, receive mercy. You know, and maybe we might be tempted to apply it that, you know, thinking of it that way, applying it that way to others. So it's easy to conclude, you know, to the degree that I'm merciful to others, God will be merciful to me. To the degree that I forgive, I'll get God's forgiveness. To the degree that, you know, I, I show that I'm willing to be merciful, you know, you better respond rightly, right? And yet, you know, look at how Jesus talks about entry into and progress within the kingdom, totally in terms of grace for sinners, not the successful, that totally in terms of, you know, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You know, what is that? That's Jesus coming all the way to you and me, all the way. What else are we talking about at Advent, if not that? Entering into the full humiliation of the human condition. Coming all the way, giving everything away, not expecting anything in return. So, so to think that the only way to get mercy is to first give it to others, you know, um, is to gut grace. It's to gut the gospel, you know, which doesn't come by way of merit that we've earned, but, but freely, unreservedly through the perfect obedience and death of Jesus, coming all the way. So, so what do we make of, you know, what's going on here with this merciful shall receive mercy? Well, I think it's the same thing going on in all the Beatitudes, it's grace all the way through and grace all the way down. It's grace that shows me my spiritual poverty apart from Christ. It's grace that causes me to mourn my sin. It's grace that works meekness into my heart. It's grace that makes me hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And it's grace that compels mercy. Grace creates the merciful and grace compels mercy. Grace means I can never look at another person in the same way again, even if I'm being sinned against because with the gospel... I've got new sympathies towards sinners, a new solidarity with sinners. I've entered that story. I know what it's like to live it because I see in the lives and the story of, of non-believing friends, whatever that may look like, whatever version of it, it there is, I have to see something of my own story. That, that, that before, you know, my story before I was saved by the grace of Jesus which I think raises a second challenge, not only misunderstanding mercy, but, but what I might call kind of mishandling it. Um, and, 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 you know, I think one way to kind of diagnose this is to consider how we handle our power. We've all got some power. Some of us have a lot of it. Some of us have a little, you know, but let's just bring it down to the common denominator and let's just say someone's done you wrong. You know, maybe they've gossiped about you. They cut you off in traffic. Not that that ever happens around here, but they've, been, you know, they've embarrassed you in a meeting or in some social setting, and, and, and they're getting away with it. You know, what do, we, what do you do with that when opportunity presents itself to right the scales? When the opportunity presents itself to, to make your move and use whatever little power you might have to get them back? Doing, you know, what you can to shape the opinion of someone toward another person negatively. 
So they're thinking a little too highly of them. You know, or in getting cut off and going, well, I'm going to cut you off. You know, or seeing that, you know, they too endure a little bit of the embarrassment you had to endure. You know, doing our level best to make sure they're denied whatever good or honor they might otherwise have. Um, you know, and the question is, what if instead of looking to the offensive into, offenses and to the wrongs, fixating on that, what if we instead look to Jesus? What if we took a long look at Jesus and apprehended the grace and mercy that is ours in him? I think when we do that, when we grab a hold of the present power of the gospel, uh, a new narrative takes shape. It's a new story. Uh, a new power grips you by which you can look at the offense and the offender quite differently. You know, with the spectacles of the gospel on your eyes, because we know that to one degree or another, when we see that in others, guess what? We are looking in the mirror. You might even begin to think, and I think you will, if you're really apprehending the grace of the gospel and the power of it, you'll, you, you will begin to go, that sin is nothing compared to what I've been forgiven. Because we, we're not disconnecting from the grace that is central to our own story. In fact, looking to the cross, you will begin to think, there's nothing anyone could ever do to you worse than what he endured because of you. It's powerful. It's like you become unoffendable. You know, there's few better illustrations of this than the parable of the debtors in Matthew 18. This is the story, of course, of the man who was forgiven a massive debt by the king. And, and to be clear, not merely massive criminal. There's no way he could have accrued this much debt, you know, millions and millions of dollars against the king without some, some shenanigans. And of course, to put someone in that position is disastrous to them. But he came before the, he was called before the king, and the king did the most unexpected thing. He canceled it. You know, just forget about it. You don't owe it. Well, that's it. And then, as the story goes on, he he goes out and immediately comes up on, comes upon someone who owes him like ten bucks, and he brings down the full brunt of the law on him. Has him thrown in jail. And word, of course, gets back to the king. The king is furious and has him thrown in jail until he should pay that debt that he has forgiven. In other words, he's in jail forever. What's the point of that story? The point of that story is it is a tragedy. It's the tragedy of a man who has forgotten his own story. That's, that's it. It, it. It is an illustration of our tragic capacity to receive grace without actually reckoning with it. It's a story of a man who never reckoned with grace. He received it. He was glad to receive the forgiveness, but it didn't teach him anything. It didn't transform him. He refused the teaching of it. He never really contended with the massive criminal level of debt he'd accrued and, and, and how that debt dishonored the king and what it cost the king to give him forgiveness and the sweetness of that, the freedom of that. For him, he received grace, but he never reckoned with it. Had he reckoned with it, he would have come upon his own debtor with delighted eagerness to forgive. Like that's nothing. He would have had a fresh tenderness of heart. He would have had a brokenheartedness towards, towards someone who was burdened by that 
guilt that comes with debt. He would have new sympathies working toward the mercy of others. It would have been a joyful thing. So, you know, I've got to ask, is, is this idea of sympathy for sinners, and I mean sympathy for real sinners. I have a pastor friend who doesn't even say sinners anymore. He just names sins. Adulterers, liars, pornographers. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, that sounds different. But is this idea of sympathy for sinners, real sinners, something we even value? You know, do we understand it, that kind of sympathy, to be a necessary outgrowth of grace? Is it recognizable to us? Or, and I'm going to speak to my, you know, I'm going to let you in on the narrative of my own heart. Maybe it's yours. Here's what my heart whispers. They are the way they are because they haven't been as responsible as they should have been, as I have. As obedient as they should have been, as I have. As wise as they should have been, as I have. As, as good a decision maker as they should have been, as I have. One more adept at navigating life as I have been. You know, their misery is the bed they've made for themselves, so now they must lie in it. I don't know if, that, if you can relate to that. And, and to that I want to say, praise God from whom all blessings flow, that Jesus did not regard us in that way. And to be clear, for Jesus, that made for a lot of trouble in his life. It, it made for a, a reputation and a ministry in which he was regularly being accused of being soft on sin, of associating with all the wrong kinds of people, of being unconcerned with God's holiness and good reputation, of being insufficiently patriotic, of failing to uphold the morals, you know, viewed as necessary to holding all of society together. All of that came off on Jesus. You know, that, that scandal is right at the center of all of his ministry. It's, it's at the center of the parable of the Good Samaritan, where not only is the good guy the outsider, the bad guys are the paragons of religious righteousness. You know, it's a scandal at the center of the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8, where the scribes and priests, you know, have got themselves an open and shut case of moral failure and are ready to apply the law and stoner. But also at the center of those stories and those scandals and that brokenness is Jesus. Eager to give mercy, reminding everyone of their story, telling them that you know, whoever has no sin, you can just go ahead and throw the first stone. It seems to me that our failure to apply mercy comes not only because we forget the truth of our own story of receiving grace, but we begin to believe another story altogether. You know, the story being, I'm blessed because I've been good and obedient and upright, and anyway, I'm not as bad as this guy over here. So mercy tests us, it tries us, it places us in situations where one of two things is going to be revealed in those who have received mercy from Jesus. That we're either living lives in which we're reckoning with grace or we're disregarding it. We're either remembering the gospel or we have become amnesiacs. We're either going back to the story or writing a fake one. We have a confession in the Presbyterian church that speaks about Jesus and talks about his work and it describes, it sort of lays out this framework and it's in terms of the threefold offices of Jesus Christ. Um, that is to say, he occupies kind of these three roles as, as, as our redeemer, as, as a prophet, as a king, and as a priest. 
And it's, it's worth reading. This will edify you if you read the Westminster Confession of Faith and read these sections on this meditation about the work of Jesus. And, you know, but, but suffice to say for now, I think who he is must be reflected in who we are as a denomination, as a church, as pastors, as elders, as members. You know, that that, that ought to show up in us in some way. And I, and I want to tell you, I've been in leadership in this denomination for over 25 years in some form or another. And I think we do pretty well in the kingly. We maintain order. We have a rule of life that reflects Jesus' rule and order in his church. I think we do pretty well in the prophetic. You know, we're committed to the, to the word of God, to proclaiming it, to preaching and teaching from it. But when it comes to the priestly, I think we've got work to do. You know, it, when it comes to taking that role of being sympathetic sinners, priestly, taking a priestly posture like Abraham, standing between a holy God and an out-of-control Sodom, making his plea and saying, Lord, please save. You know, critically making that appeal not on the basis of his own righteousness. In fact, in that prayer, if you go back and look at it, Abraham's just like, look, I'm dust and ashes. He makes the appeal on the basis of who God is. He keeps saying, far be it from you. Because in Abraham's own story, worshiping idols in Ur, God showed up and showed mercy. He saw in Sodom, his, he was looking at a mirror. He came to know God as a God of mercy. You know, so I want to ask you the question, do you want to honor God? Do you want to live an upright life? Pursue mercy. Take a priestly posture toward your neighbors, towards this city, toward the culture. You know, turn off the news that is designed to do nothing but both outrage you and bolster your inherent sense of self-righteousness, you know, so that you would know that you are better than all these other people, and instead plead to God for mercy on behalf of those people. You know, make your appeal, intercede, plead on behalf of our non-believing friends and neighbors to the living God that they would come to know the greatness of the mercy that we are currently enjoying. And it's growing in our life all the time, eager to dispense it. And look, the question could be put to any one of us here about whether we've received mercy, known it, experienced it. We could ask that question. We could give the answer with our lips, but the reality is it's going to show up in our lives. We're answering it already. You know, in our eagerness to show mercy, which by its nature goes toward, by the very nature of it, goes toward the least deserving, right? If that's missing from my, from my life, if that's missing from your life, I'm, I'm afraid the Bible leaves us with only one explanation. We're not reckoning with grace. We've forgotten our story. Mercy tests us. It pushes us not so much to examine how well our disciplines are going, although those are important, or whether or not you're interested in the things of God, that's important, or whether or not your theology is squared away, that's important. But the test is simply this, are you merciful? Am I merciful? A while back, I saw an interview with the actor Mandy Patinkin, um, who uh, was reflecting on a role, probably his most famous role, that he played in a movie called The Princess Bride. He played this uh, man named Inigo Montoya. If you know the movie, you know Inigo Montoya was the character whose entire life had, been con had become consumed with one thing, and that was avenging the murder of his father. And throughout the film, he comes up, you know, 
against all these people, and he's just convinced, you know, you murdered my father. And he, you know, um, and he confronts them all with the same line. He says, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And that is the line that Patinkin, in this interview as an actor, said, you know, I always thought that was the, the line that kind of summed up my character. But then he talked about being at a hotel room, and the Princess Bride came on TV. And he said, um, you know, he hadn't watched it in 30 years. And so he thought he would sit down and watch it. He had some time on his hands. And, you know, in the film, Inigo Montoya eventually does avenge the murder of his father. But after that, he has this interaction with really the, the main character of the movie, someone that at one time Inigo had accused of killing his father, uh, a character by the name of the Dread Pirate Roberts. And you come to find out in the movie that the Dread Pirate Roberts isn't so much a person as it is a position. Uh, a position that's been passed on from person to person. Um, a person uh, conferring upon that person a, a cape and a mask. You know, because the Dread Pirate Roberts is a redeemer. He's a person who works, you know, on behalf of, of, of the poor and the oppressed. Who, those who are crushed with injustice to bring justice. And it's, it's a position currently occupied by a, a man named Wesley. And Wesley, you know, desiring to return to his old life and his first love, you know, after all said and done, he, he offers Inigo Montoya the opportunity to be a redeemer. He, he offers him the position. He holds out the mask and the cape that go along with it. And, and, and sitting in his hotel room, Mandy Patinkin watched his 28-year-old self uh, as a 58-year-old man. And he saw his character refuse that offer. And he came to realize what he said in the refusal not only summarized his character, but in some, way, in some ways summarized his own life. And he said with tears, and the line is this, I have been in the revenge business for so long. Now that it's over, I do not know what to do with the rest of my life. And Mandy Patinkin reflected on this with tears in his eyes. And I, I've contemplated that interview more than once as a pastor, as a pastor ministering among a people badly in need of mercy. And, you know, I've wondered often, am I, am I saying no? I don't, I don't want the cape and the mask. I, don't want, I, I, I'm, I want to refuse the opportunity for redemption in, or, in favor of revenge. You know, and I ask myself, why am I mad at the mission field? Do, do I want them to pay for their transgressions? Am I more motivated to straighten people out than I am moved by sympathy toward them? Because I relish and rely on the greatness of Jesus' sympathy for me. Am I treating the mercy of Christ as some kind of distant memory or am I treasuring it? Is it a mercy that moves me to repentance and faith as a lifestyle, moves me toward others with the mercy of Jesus all the way? And look, you know, maybe some of this is making you nervous. <laughs> maybe you're concerned that, concerned that too much sympathy toward real sinners might come across as being soft on sin. Maybe you're worried it might impugn your otherwise good reputation or worse, God's good reputation. And all I can say again is look to Jesus. 
Look at the depth of his love and mercy for the most scandalous, most spectacular, most notorious sinners. I would say you will find a through line that he is attracted to that. He moves toward it. And, and, and look at how readily he allowed all the scandal and all the stench to land on him, not because he didn't care about God's reputation, but precisely because he did. Because he was determined that the Lord get glory and be known and famed for who he actually is, that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. As those who've received that same grace, you know, let's reckon with it. Let's take a moment as we come to this table and pray that the gospel become sweet to us again, that we'd be fed at this table, and that that would bear fruit uh, in giving mercy to one another and to this city. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, this is who you are. Um, you know, it's a, I've been trying to get my head around this uh, a lot this week, but, you know, it's funny how we can construct a vision of holiness that actually has nothing to do with you. It's really all about us. So, Lord, we just want to come to this table uh, repenting of that and relishing uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, which has come to us in these terms, terms of mercy. Lord, this is at the heart of who you are. It is, in, it is inscribed in your name. And Jesus, I pray, you know, as we, you know, as I've thought about particular situations this week, withheld mercy that needs to be dispensed, Lord, would you, um, would you show us grace in those situations? And Lord, would you make us lovers of mercy? Would you make us more and more like Jesus where we actually begin to become attracted and move toward those who are far away? And Lord, for every you know, unreconciled thing, for every offense that has come our way, Lord, would we, as we look at that, take 10 long looks at Jesus and remember our story and never write another one, but live in that. And Lord, that's what we're doing as we come to this table. So be with us, be at work through this, and Lord, we pray that uh, as we take this up um, as our calling, Lord, that it would be a joy and a delight in this city, that, that people would, would be astonished at the greatness of our God and the greatness of the good news. We pray all of it in Jesus' name, amen.